What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William Bay, an inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're gonna do 75 sets a week. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That, no, it's funny, I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. Uh, I'll tell you why. Look. All right. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. Yes, and we are continuing um, with our chronicles of people who have been executed in in San Quentin prison on death row in in recent years, the most recent round of executions. And uh, this has brought us to uh, Manuel Babbitt. And uh, this is, so this is also a story of uh, someone who maybe is not like some kind of total psychopathic serial killer type guy there's a lot going on on the backstory here right yeah it, there's a lot to this guy here um i happen to have known daniel babbitt and just the way everything went down with him and, and today we understand what ptsd does to people and mental health and those things. When this guy was executed, none of this stuff existed, and it did. People just kind of shrugged it off as being a, a ploy. So I, I really believe that we should pick up. I think we should pick up where he really starts his life in Massachusetts. You know, being poor and really a, not really a terrible childhood, but one where obviously there are issues there. Uh, the biggest one being poverty. I think we should just start from there and in his high school years. Yeah, so I don't know if you were going to get into it, but two things that set him back almost or, or led to the possibility of him having uh, either brain damage or mental illness. Um, at 12 years old, he's on his bike and I believe hit by a car. And his behavior, according to his family, who, uh, you know, his brother's, you know, a reasonable person, uh, his, you know, his behavior changed right away. And he drops out of school at seven, uh, in seventh grade. Prior to that, he was always on time. Good student, this according to his brother. Um, and then their, you know, their dad was uh, somewhat abusive and the mom had schizophrenia apparently she would dress up in funeral clothes and talk to a pear tree and um so obviously that can be inherited uh genetically and he's diagnosed later with that same that same illness yeah there's obviously something wrong with this kid but you know he hits the age of 17 and right away the first thing he wants to do is join the military um United States was drafting them because of Vietnam. And um, records show that he failed his test to even become
become a Marine. And he comes back and takes it a second time. The recruiter, in order to make his quota, bring in certain young men per week or per day, helps him with the test, and lo and behold, he passes. And this is where I believe United States, the government, the entire country failed this guy. They sent him to Vietnam, and he is thrust at a, he's a child. A teenager is a child. And he's thrust into Vietnam. He's obviously good at what he does. He's there for two tours. At one point in 1968, he's in a huge firefight with South Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, and he's wounded. He's running through half jungle, helping other Marines get out of there. He's taken back to camp. He's dressed up, and he's right back at it again within a week. And this guy, his life would have not turned out the way it did. We would be speaking about this guy in terms of war hero. So he, you know, he continues his life there in Vietnam doing what the, the, the United States Marine Corps is taught to be. And that's a good soldier. Don't complain. Just do what you do. And he enlists a second time for a second tour. And then here's where things start going really haywire. He comes back to the States. And I'm sure that some of the listeners are old enough to remember that military personnel, when they came back from Vietnam, were not treated with the most kindest of words. And he was already damaged. Uh, PTSD is already setting in. People in his neighborhood said that they would witness him hiding in bushes, stalking people in the neighborhood as if he were stalking people in war. He is, his behavior is completely uh, diagnosed by people who are watching him as being schizophrenic in a way. He believes things are happening to him. He hears voices. And then he makes a mistake. He robs, uh, he's charged with armed robbery. And instead of sending the prison because they gave him an eight-year term, he is sent to a mental institute where he's diagnosed as mentally insane. So let me say this again. He's diagnosed as mentally insane. And instead of, of course, going to prison for eight years, he does a few years in a mental institute. He's allowed out. I mean, <laughs> this is like a formula for disaster. Had this happened today, I believe people would have looked upon him closer and maybe something could have been done to prevent this from happening. But his, his behavior is completely consistent with PTSD and no one helps him. Uh, according to his common law wife and his brother, anything that was reminiscent of Vietnam would send him into something of a panic. Uh, I guess green garbage bags were common. Uh, even like Vietnamese people, he, you know, had a, a reaction to that and to music that they would play in the camps. I mean, he was in Quezon, which is one of the bloodiest battles of that war. I mean, what he was exposed to is like beyond my comprehension. Um, you know, 274 uh, U.S. service members were killed in that battle, and uh, between 10 and, 
and 15,000 people total. I mean, just the, the level of carnage is something that, you know, we don't really see anymore in, in, in these wars. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's terrible. And, and, that, and I, I, I would be, I guess, incompetent in my viewpoint if I didn't give this side of this because a lot of the listeners in today's day and age take a lot of things for granted. And, and I mean, the listeners, of course, I am not included in that bunch. But we all know and see the story of Rambo. Guy comes to a village, he's to a town, he's treated badly. Uh, he responds a certain way. The part that I want people to remember is how you responded as soon as someone did something to him. Manuel Babbitt was trained to be a killer by the United States Armed Forces. That's his job. And each and every one of you enjoy your freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of to bear arms. All the constitutional rights are not worth the paper they're printed on if men in the armed forces don't do their job in protecting those rights. Manuel Babbitt was one of them. Unfortunately, we see this all the time. Vietnam veterans on street corners begging for 10 cents. They have no legs. They have no arms. We see it on television. Wounded warriors. Please give 1995 for a veteran to eat. Are you serious? These are the people that gave their lives, their bodies, their minds for this country. They're patriots. And this is what we do to them. Manuel Babbitt had issues related to PTSD, and I'm not making excuses for him. I believe every man should be responsible and held accountable for his actions. What I'm saying is that the signs were there. Someone could have helped. They didn't. But this guy, if you think of it this way, that night that he committed the crimes they did in 1980 against, um, Miss Leah, and I don't want to mess up this last name, Shindell. I mean, he killed somebody. He went into her room. This is right after he tried committing suicide, by the way. He goes into her home, and for lack of a better word, he just, he murdered her. He killed her. He took items from the home. Um, and interestingly enough, Matt, he... He tied a rope around her left ankle, which servicemen did in Vietnam to mark the bodies of comrades fallen in battle so they can identify them. He covers the, the, the upper half of the body with a mattress. Again, in Vietnam, to protect the body from the elements, they would cover the bodies. So he's doing a lot of things that are almost reminiscent of what was going on in Vietnam. Of course, the part that the attempted rape was not part of that. I don't know what was going through his head then, but his neighbor hears it. The following morning, they find Miss uh, Chandel dead. Yeah, and at this time, like you said, he's exhibiting every symptom, I mean, the red flags are just everywhere. He had, he had attempted suicide at least once. I, I counted three times. And um, 
that night he was like a lot of these guys who came home uh, from Vietnam. His brother described him as limping mentally and morally. Uh, he was engaged in substance abuse that night. You know, nothing that getting drunk and, and smoking pot. And of course, especially the pot, I think if you have some mental illness in there can can really have a, a negative effect as well. Yeah, I absolutely, I agree that that could have been maybe a, a little bit. I, I just, the PTSD, what he, the damage that he suffered in Vietnam and the, comment, uh, the, the problem or that organic brain damage plus, or to the onset of paranoid schizophrenia is, I believe, the culprit here. Not that, that he was smoking weed or, or induced, uh, or he was drinking alcohol. I, I, it may have had a little bit to do with it. There's just so but many I, factors. I, I mean, he got shrapnel yeah. embedded in his head in, in Quezon as well. Like, there, you can just list so many factors that would lead someone to um, not be in their right mind, you know? Absolutely. And again, we've said this before, we're not making excuses for this guy. We're just shocked at this guy's record and what was happening to this man. Thank you for using Global Tell Link. Hi, Matt. Hi. Um, so, yeah, we kind of went over the first crime, and then there's another incident, right? Yeah, the, 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 the night after this, on December the 19th, um, something else happens, but I did want to touch on one thing regarding the first uh, murder. Uh, the police found at the house of course it was in disarray was ransacked but really strange behavior is that the woman was nude from the waist down and he had put a tea kettle and it was sitting on top of her like pubic area but there was a leather, leather strap tied her left ankle and it just that type of behavior, what does that mean? Why would he do this? And again, you start looking at his mental state and how he's responding to different situations. So, of course, it's like an ombudsman. And that's what it sounds like. This guy's programmed to do one thing in war. He's damaged. And something set him off. Something clicked. And he goes on a two-day spree. The first one, of course, ends with the the loss of a human life. Um, Miss um, Shandell is killed. And then the second day, on December the 19th, another elderly woman is arriving home at 11 o'clock at night. And as she enters the driveway in her car, she spots Manuel Babbitt, who stops. And according to her, locks eyes with her. She then gets out of her car to go to her home and Manuel Babbitt attacks her from behind demanding to have her keys to her car and, and her response is to throw the keys as far as she can up the driveway so he can't steal her car and this seems to really anger him because he begins to assault her he beats her very badly drives her into the bushes and she loses consciousness. When she comes to, he is removing or attempting to remove her clothes, her pants, 
and she loses consciousness again. And that's all she remembers because then, of course, her daughter and a family friend that was in the house spotted Manuel Babbitt walking across the lawn, running across the lawn when he came out of the house. He looked in the driveway. He sees the victim and runs back and gets her daughter. And they find um, the woman, the victim, basically unconscious. Her purse has been ransacked, gone through. There is money missing. There's a silver ring missing, a gold watch, and a pendant's missing that he took. And, you know, he disappears again. And, of course, um, this leads to his arrest because the first crime scene, he had left his palm print and his fingerprints all over the crime scene as well as on that key the tea kettle that he left behind. Um, so who knows what the significance was of that tea kettle? It, it does sound like something that might have significance to someone who wasn't in their right mind. Um, did you read? So during this time, he was spending a lot of time at this bar called Sticks Bar that I think was owned by his half brother, and apparently some of the locals knew he was a little bit crazy. And they would ply him with alcohol and drugs so that he would basically freak out and they would laugh at him, which is terrible to think about, but it's also something I can see happening. Yeah, a bar is not the healthiest place in the world for um, people in their right mind. And there's a lot of bullying going on, I'm sure. There's a couple of alpha males in there, and they decide to play games with this guy because he's a little off. I mean, if you meet the guy and spend any amount of time with him, you immediately notice that something is wrong with him. It's it's not obvious where he's, you know, drooling, but you can tell when you speak to him, his eyes lose focus. He's not all there. Um, and obviously, this had not occurred or this type of behavior had not occurred before he went to Vietnam because I'm, I'm hoping at least or I'm thinking that the Marine Corps would have said, hey, wait a minute, you can't send this guy out to war with his mental condition. So this happened during his time in Vietnam. Yeah, and I don't think that, I mean, obviously he joined uh, the Marines at the height of the conflict in Vietnam. He volunteered. I don't think that happened very often. Um, but he was also either illiterate or close to that, and he, he couldn't pass the test without the recruiter cheating. So, you know, he he wasn't really supposed to be there in the in the first place. I, obviously, they're not screening him properly, right? Yeah. Well, I'm sure recruiters have a a quarter to meet, and they wanted to get as many bodies as they could in Vietnam. The Uncle Sam needs you, and there's a lot of men that go there that shouldn't be there. Um, regardless, um, he did go. He did suffer these uh, mental lapses or brain damage or the PTSD was so severe that it affected him in such a way that it, it basically lit the fuse for paranoid schizophrenia as well, which, again, it, it just compounds the, the issue here, the problem here. And it, it, you can't say that he is only to blame for this. Um, of course, the country's at war. You need bodies. 
But there is an aftermath. People have to be responsible for these vets that are, the, in my opinion at least, the biggest patriots that this country has. Men that will... I mean, these guys aren't politicians who talk about, hey, we need bodies to go to Vietnam. We need you to come help us. Because politicians, for the most part, let's be honest, are cowards. Their kids, I mean, unless you're John McCain, who was a war hero, but most politicians are not going to go to war. Some of them do, but the majority don't. So they don't understand what happens to these men while they're gone. And this is a perfect example of one of their machines breaking down mentally. I found a quote from Governor Gray Davis, uh, governor at the time, and he was, with all these cases, you know, there were people asking for clemency, and um, Babbitt had a lot of support. We can get to that in a minute. Um, But Davis said, quote, I have great respect for anyone that served their country, but I feel very strongly that no one should take another person's life. And that's true. I, I agree with him, but that's actually what you're sending people to Vietnam uh, to do. Uh, obviously, it's very, you have to differentiate those things, but nonetheless, what I said is also true. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. You know, this guy deserved better, and, I, and his victims deserve better. So I want to be clear about that. We're not making excuses for this guy. What we are, what I at least am doing here, is pointing that there were significant signals that someone needed to take notice. If nothing else, the Marine Corps, who sent these men there, should have some kind of accountability for their machines. Because when you send a boy into war, you tell him to kill everyone on the other side as quickly as you can, and they hand you a machine gun and anything else to do what you have to do, you've got to wonder that what's going to happen to these men when they come back. And Gray Davis is saying, look, I respect what you for the country, but no one should take a life. Yeah, I get that. But again, there's a politician sweeping the, the problem under the rug. Manny Babbitt should be held accountable for his crimes. No doubt in my mind. But this could have been avoided. This could have been avoided the signals were loud and clear and I just I feel strongly about that and um, I feel very strongly about the victims in this case who suffered there was one death the other um, a woman where the victim was was beaten severely and, and that should never have happened either because he never should have been running around doing what he wanted to do when the signs are there. His family was seeking help for him. He robbed somebody. He went to a mental institute. When he entered that place, the first thing that institution should have done was call the United States Marine Corps and said, hey, we have one of your machines here. He is acting a bit off. We need you to come down here, pick him up, and have him properly evaluated or whatever. They didn't. They just swept the problem under the rug, and these are the results. Yeah, and he's further failed a little bit by not having proper defense. Um, His defender, his name is James Shank, uh, had recently or or would soon be busted for stealing $50,000 from the trust fund of someone he was representing. And in this case, according to him, this is his own words, 
he he did not provide an adequate defense and in fact every day at lunch he would go and drink four shots four double shots of vodka which is insane i mean it's it's insane it's not really insane if you're staying out all night getting drunk but then to go into a courtroom is bananas i mean he really ha must have been pretty drunk at that point yeah, and the interesting part about that, because I've read some of the cases where this happened, where other uh, attorneys, defense attorneys were drunk or under the influence of cocaine, methamphetamines, and usually when you, one of the defendants appeals on that right, or that right to have effective counsel, the standards are a bit different. The court only rules, were you prejudiced by it? And the obvious answer would be, well, of course he was prejudiced. The court didn't want you to point out, show me the instances where his behavior immediately prejudiced you. If the attorney is drunk, he makes the correct objections, or he brings up the right questioning, or brings up the right defense, or even a defense that's even slightly common looking, the court says, look, it's fine. There's no real prejudice here because he got an adequate defense. But that's insane in a death penalty case. Four shots of double vodka at lunchtime, and then he goes into, into battle for this guy. That's pretty insane. Yeah, I and mean, you would nothing wrong with that, by the way. You would think the judge would have removed him at some point because if you're drinking that much every day, at some point, it's you're actually gonna make it obvious that you're impaired. You know, no one can hold their liquor like that. No, and interesting enough, the court found, affirmed that the conviction said, "No, well, he wasn't prejudiced by that." You know, we find that he did, he was drinking, but however, it didn't affect his uh, his ability to defend Matt But it probably it, it certainly did, which is evidenced by the fact that he was lazy, which you would expect. You know, there were plenty of people that would have stepped forward as character witnesses uh, for Babbitt, and he didn't call any of them. And you know, some of these were decorated um, soldiers and and. Uh, African American leaders, prominent people, didn't didn't want him talking. So, yeah, he um, and obviously when he was arrested, he did admit to committing the offenses, but he said he didn't remember it. That immediately would have prompted the defense to bring in expert witnesses uh, because the trial defense was diminished capacity and unconsciousness, and that attorney pretty much failed him in every corner. He's convicted. Convicted of murder, the first degree, robbery, and the attempted rape. And of course, the second assault that happened and they, they used it as a aggravating circumstance to secure a death penalty, which he did receive. There was some, some back and forth. Part of the defense uh, was that he suffered from epilepsy which i'm assuming was brought on by the ptsd although i i don't know if that was pre-existing and you know there was some discussion of whether someone under the influence of a seizure could actually um operate these specific tasks such as breaking into a place attacking them at the end of the day it was fairly Im immaterial because he he had admitted to it, um, but that there was a lot of discussion about about if he could have done it, you know, under the influence of a seizure, and really had no uh, control, no awareness of his actions. 
for sure um so when he was on death row was he medicated and did people um either due to his veteran status or just because he was like kind of visibly mentally ill did they um treat him a certain way yeah that's a good question uh manuel babbitt did not live in east block but for a very short time he lived in North Seg most of the time, where the, most of the guys had left alone. There. He was not on medication, and I know this because in those days, there was no mental health programs in San Quentin. If you broke a leg, they usually gave you Tylenol and said, well, you'll be all right. There was really no medical programs here. If you had a, a dental issue, they pulled the tooth. That was it. That was the dental um, medication you had or dental um uh, kind of a, the program that they had. There, there was none. So he wasn't under any medication. He was left alone because he was a loner. He really did not interact with a lot of people. There were a couple of veterans here that he spoke to, uh, but not many. Manuel Babbitt was a loner. I think that he was alone, not only physically, but also mentally. He did not interact with people like normal people do because there was obviously something bothering him. It wasn't obvious. He wasn't mumbling in the corner. He wasn't shouting names at the middle of the night. He just acted different. Do you think he was aware of what he had done? I, I, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I believe that he did, and I'm sure he did. He was not... Just because a person can say, hey, would you like a cup of coffee? And they say, yes, absolutely. Does not mean they, they actually understand the culpability of what they've done or understand the gravity of what they've done. I think he knew that he committed a grave offense. 
Now, the question is, does he understand right from wrong? That evening, that's a big question. But later on, when he knew what he was on trial for, did he understand those things? I believe he did. What I, the only part that I am a little hesitant to say is, how much culpability can he let rest on his shoulders given the fact of what happened to him? That's it. Because I don't want people to think that you and I are advocating here for anybody who's been executed unless the person's innocent. He is not innocent. Manuel Babbitt is not innocent of these crimes. And he should be held responsible. The only question I have is, was this right to execute a man who served this country in the honorable and passionate way that he did, and then because of serving this country, suffered those mental leap relapses of going back to war in his mind. And then this country basically turned their back on him. That's an issue for me. Yeah. So he's sentenced uh, July 6th, like we said, 1982, uh, to death by lethal injection. Um, in March of 1998. Well, was, that... I'm sorry. He was sentenced to death by gas. Oh. By the time he got executed, they changed it to lethal injection. Oh, I see. Okay. So he is eventually executed, but uh, he's on death row for quite some time. In in March of 1998, uh, while he's on death row, he was given a Purple Heart, for uh, which is what you get if you're wounded in combat. Um, there was then legislation introduced to not allow uh, people in prison uh, to receive uh, these medals while in prison. Uh, I don't really know how to feel about that, except to say, uh, I don't, I don't think it matters. Uh, obviously, it's a political thing. I'm curious your thoughts on that, though. Yeah, it, they made a big deal about that. Well, in 1998, when he was taken from his son, and he went into a special visiting area. He just was not given a Purple Heart. There was a ceremony there by the military. They came in um, and in regular like military fashion did a ceremony to give him this Purple Heart for his services. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I spoke to two of the officers that escorted him there and both of those officers were military men and I asked them this specific question how did you feel about a guy who's been sentenced to death and obviously killed someone to receive some of the highest honors and the first one told me it pissed me off that one of ours was treated this way and I asked him to explain himself he said he said, Bill, I sat there and I watched this man receive a Purple Heart because he gave everything to our country. He had no anger towards the, the, uh, the Marine Corps, the military, anything. He said, what struck me, he said, it, it almost brought tears in my eyes, was that when they gave him the medal, they had him chained up. He was chained in shackles that went around his waist. He had handcuffs. He had chains down to his legs that wrapped around shackles that went around his ankles. And when they handed him the medal, the officer did, the officer of the Marine Corps, 
Emmanuel Babbitt immediately rose to attention and attempted to raise his right arm in a salute, but the chains would not allow him to. So he ducked his head to touch his fingers to his temple. The officer said, that pissed me off. But what did they expect him to do? Pull a machine gun and shoot everybody? He said that was the most disrespectful thing you've ever seen done to a soldier. And the other one expressed the same things. So even when he's being executed, he knows he's going to get executed. He receives his purple heart. And he's still a patriot. I think that's incredible. Yeah. And, and he had, which I think you articulated, but a unanimous support, I think, from, from those communities. Um, there's a Detroit police officer named Lynn Dornan. And in asking, um, you know, the governor and, and these people to spare his life, you know, this guy said how Babbitt saved him, saved his life in Quezon uh, by, you know, pulling him into a bunker when he was wounded, which I, I'm assuming is one of the things that provided him that Purple Heart. But, um, you know, there weren't, there was not a real strong chorus of people, bes you know, besides the families of the victims, which is understandable. Um, but there, there was a lot of opposition to him being executed because, um, because of his military service and the fact that he was obviously mentally ill. And usually we make exceptions uh, in the case of, of people who are mentally ill. Usually, not always. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the bigger picture in all of this is, and I, I know Matt, Manuel Babbitt is dead, the victims are dead, and not to make them seem less. The, the bigger picture here is veterans as a whole. This country should pause for a moment and give respect to these men who have given everything they've had. And let's, let's take Manuel Babbitt out of the, the picture. Every time you pull your car to a corner, you see a man who's in his dungarees or his military uh, uniform, you can see he's a veteran, he has no legs, and he's begging for something. I guess the question is, why is he there? Why has our country allowed these men when to, to suffer this way when, and I think here I am again giving you a bit of truth so everyone knows what's going on and who's getting duped in this. These men serve their countries and lose their legs and they can't get medical, they can't get any benefits, they're sitting in street corners, they're dying, they're begging for soups. But yet a guy walks into any liquor store, robs it, gets eight years in prison, and he has the best medical service you can money can buy. Right now, if I fell and broke my leg, they would rush me out of here and send me to a hospital, give me the best orthopedic surgeons the country can buy, I have the best dental care, and I'm a I'm a criminal. And so are other, what, some like million people in the United States. Why can a criminal receive all these benefits? And I'm, I'm not saying he shouldn't. What I'm saying is, why do we treat our veterans with this type of disrespect? Not the ones that are in prison, the ones we see on street corners, and obviously that need help. Yeah. Um... I mean, uh, something I found because this still happens, but back then it was, it was so much more pronounced. I mean, the 
I think the World War II veterans, for just various uh, sociological reasons, they didn't have the same um, reactions necessarily. And even in this trial, some of the prosecution uh, were saying things about a psychiatrist, like, uh, well, they're just trying to sell their bag of tricks. I mean, just very skeptical of mental health experts in general um and, and that was that was kind of common around the country too you know like like you kind of touched on but a lot of these psychiatrists psychologists were looked at as you know quack naive idiots or or, or demonized that way quite often in trials as well it's only been the last two or three years that we're actually seeing people in Hollywood, the movie business, athletes, professional athletes. We just had Simone Bias, the Olympic gold medalist, take away, stop from doing what she was doing because of a mental flare-up. So this is becoming more accepted. It happens to people, and they're respecting it more. And, and I'll come back now and, and touch a bit on that um, when I come back. As I was saying, that it's become more accepted now that even professional athletes like Michael Phelps talks about mental health issues and mental health in general, and it's accepted by a lot more people now that it's okay to, to ask for help if you're feeling down, maybe suicidal, uh, or you know you have anger issues. It's okay to ask for help. That this did not exist in those days. You know, if you were a man or a boy and you said you felt a certain way, most of the time parents would tell you, shut up and go back to work, don't worry about it. But now we're actually paying a little bit more attention, which is, is a good thing. Uh, but uh, on the subject of, of, of uh, Manuel Babbitt, uh, yeah, he was, um, he had very little to say when that moment approached. He spent the last days, I mean, the last days, of course, and hours with family. He fasted, he didn't eat. His um, last meal, he declined it, and he asked that the $50 that the state by that time was providing for a last meal because some of the because some of the eccentric things that guys wanted before, and you, guys, you and I have spoken about this, you know, gallons of ice cream and you know, 41 bucket or, or 21 piece bucket of chicken. So the state put a cap of $50 on it. Manuel Babbitt asked that those $50 be given to a homeless veteran. I mean, even in his last deed, he was trying to maybe make up for some of the things that he did. He said, I forgive you all were his last words. Yeah. Yeah, and so he was uh, at 12.29 a.m., May 4th, 1999. And right, so by that point, it was the lethal injection. They had found the gas to be uh, inhumane or cruel, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just, it, it's just an evolution of the execution process. And, you know, they found it to be more humane to execute somebody with... Um, a lethal injection, and yeah, as you said, twelve twenty nine, he was um, he was pronounced dead. One interesting thing I read here: um, 
is that of the people seeking clemency for him uh, was the brother of the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. And this is interesting because Babbitt's brother turned him in and uh, the brother of Ted Kaczynski uh, turned him in as well. This is a little different because Babbitt would have gotten caught anyway, but his brother did find some possessions that he had stolen and had known about the crime, I believe, and he he turned his brother in. He says that when he called to report it, that the officer or detective on the phone assured him that he wouldn't be uh, put to death. Um, obviously, that's not his call, but he uh, had some trepidation about it. And, uh, you know, he, he had nothing but sympathy, I think, for his brother. He, he still remained loyal, but Kaczynski's brother said, we should not put this guy to death because that will discourage family members or friends from reporting uh, those that they know of committing crimes, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, but Ted Kaczynski's brother, I believe, turned him in for the, for the ransom money that they put on him or something to that effect. Emmanuel Babbitt was trying to protect his brother. Emmanuel, uh, Emmanuel Babbitt's brother was trying to protect him, uh, I should say, and he felt that his brother kept going. He probably would have gotten shot or killed a different way. So he went to the police department and he asked for assurances that his brother would be treated correctly. He'd be treated well. And of course, they gave him all those assurances. But as you mentioned, the, the law enforcement officer did not have the call. It was the DA's office who pursued the death penalty and ultimately got it, um, which on May the 10th, 1999, um, his body was taken back to the, his native, and I want to pronounce this correctly, Warham, Massachusetts, and he was buried there with full military honors. And um, in 2016, this whole um, episode seems to come back to light or comes back into the consciousness of America because a movie is made and the movie is called Last Day of Freedom. It, it's nominated for an Oscar. And it depicts uh, Manny's brother's narrative of the events that led to his brother's execution. Yeah, it's a half-hour documentary that's animated um, and uh, it's uh, directed by uh, D. Hibbert Jones and Nomi talisman hope i'm saying that correctly but yeah they were nominated for an oscar and uh his brother this is the one that uh, that turned him in basically is still like incredibly fraught over this uh you know he's uh he's obviously still very much affected by it oh yeah especially since a lot of the events took place because not because of him, but he, they brought him from Massachusetts to California so he could start his life anew. And that's why he was staying with his brother and why these things happened. He, he, if not, he would have probably stayed in Massachusetts. Something else would have happened, of course. But his brother is deeply affected by the events because he brought him here and ultimately he turned him in. So what do you think would happen to this guy 
these days? You know, would he be institutionalized or do you think he could maybe be medicated and, and some other therapy to the point that he could hold a job or at least live with family and be, I don't know, you know, like have a relatively normal life? You mean before he committed the murder? Yeah, I mean, because I think now they would catch what happened earlier. He, he, I'm assuming he'd be diagnosed with with PTSD bef- before he did something really crazy, because there were so many instances of him actually doing things that that were crazy. They just, you know, they weren't murders and and things like that. Um, yeah, I think it. I think it really depends on what kind of behavior he was exhibiting at the time. Some people with PTSD don't exhibit a lot of the signs. It's all happening internally to that one moment when it blows up. Uh, he was he was obviously um, exhibiting things externally, which would have given that away. But again, there's that big question as to how much help is available. I mean, I constantly see things on the radio and the television about veterans being help and would you please donate money monthly so a veteran can eat or a veteran can get the kind of medical attention he needs. So I, I don't know, honestly. It's it's almost um, it's, it's frustrating in some ways, um, you know. And, and again, I'm not speaking about Manuel Babbitt per se. I'm speaking about veterans per se. To me, it, it, it really affects me when I see these commercials with veterans have no legs, they're they're blind, and they're basically begging for someone to help them. And you know, Wounded Warriors is one of the organizations I constantly. It's one of the Wounded Warriors. It's one of the organizations I constantly see on television, and it's a little depressing to be honest with you. It, it, it makes you think, God, you know, if I was 18 years old, 19 years old, would I join the military when that's what I have coming to me? If I'm unfortunately uh, end up wounded, so yeah, uh-huh. a lot to think about. How do you think veterans? are represented in San Quentin. Obviously, I, I doubt you have some hard stats, but is it is it something you run into? Do you think it's more common um, than, than someone who wasn't in the service that they would, um, you know, be involved in committing crimes, basically? Well, there are, there are veteran groups at San Quentin. There are a couple of veteran groups on death row that meet um, on the yard weekly and they talk and they discuss they wear hats and stuff. And they, uh, But I don't believe that, at least in my opinion, that people that went to war or people in the military that suffer from PSD automatically become criminals. I believe that a portion of do because people respond to different situations differently. You know, So that's a hard one to call, but they are represented because there are several guys that went to the military. But I don't, again, I don't believe that that's an excuse. Um, just because you went to the military, went to war, are you automatically excused from doing anything? I just, they need to be, people need to be vetted better, I believe. Just because you joined the army and decide to want to go and you pass a couple physical tests and a written test, are you ready for war? There, there must be a system where you're being vetted, your mental state is analyzed properly. So we really are taking people that, actually want to go for whatever reason they have but are stable because if you're not stable when you go i can assure you when you return you're not going to be any more stable yeah yeah um you know unfortunately 
when there are wars going on and they and they need people, they tend to relax the standards and people that have red flags as far as mental health are um, are kind of given a pass. Obviously, it, it was egregious in this case, but it does still happen. Yeah, unfortunately, you're right, man. Unfortunately, you're right on that. And I think that's about where we're coming to a close on Manuel Babbitt, um, executed in 1999. Yes. Yeah. This was uh, troubling. It was just very it dark because he had so many factors, you know, again, not excusing him, but just you just see how something like this was like a train wreck that was going to happen, you know? Um, yeah. And, and I'm sure that the audience is going to well, come to realize or come to expect that both you and I are, are pretty straight shooters when it comes to these guys up. I, mean, I live with them, and I, I usually speak pretty straight when it comes to how I feel about certain situations. If you've listened to the earlier episodes, um, I've you know called it as I saw it. If I felt that a person had maybe an issue of innocence or an issue of um, something that mattered, I would mention it. Otherwise, I would call it how I see it. If the guy's a low-down rapist, child molester, I'm going to call it what it is. And we'll be back next Sunday with another episode. Please take the time to follow us on Instagram, Death Row Diaries, and Facebook, Death Row Diaries, and to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And tell a friend. It's really important. We appreciate that. We'll see you next week.